This podcast is brought to you by Yosemark Mountain Equipment, offering expert advice on gear for powder and the backcountry. Located at the corner of Ski Hill Road and 3rd Street in Driggs. And by Three Rivers Ranch Outfitters, offering winter trip planning services and selling gear from Patagonia, Orvis, Hatch, Rio, Sims, and more. Located at 76 North Main Street in Drake's. I'm Scott Stunts, and you're listening to Get Out the Podcast from the Teton Valley News. In August of 1967, a young climber fell and broke his leg while trying to ascend the north face of the Grand Teton. It took seven rangers from the Jenny Lake District three days to haul him down. It was a risky, complicated rescue, and they did it without food. Jenny Wilson, a daughter of one of the rangers, grew up with stories about those three days in August from her dad, Ted Wilson, and the other rescuers. And as we would hear the rain start to fall and would gather in the tent, they would sit around and tell stories, or it would be around the campfire. But the story would inevitably shift to Gaylord Campbell and the 1967 rescue. Jenny Wilson is now a filmmaker and has completed a new documentary, The Grand Rescue, not only to tell the story of the rescue, but of the victim, Gaylord Campbell's, less than positive reaction to being saved. What I enjoy as a filmmaker and as a daughter of one of the rescuers is that this has now come full circle. Because as I sat in that tent and listened to those stories in the rain when I was 15 years old and I heard about this climber who was ungrateful and felt they did it wrong and messed it up. I I found that intriguing. And then to be able to go and interview him, to have footage from him, to understand best that we can, I think, his perspective is really kind of cool because I don't think he's as much of a mystery anymore. For the rest of the episode, I talked to former ranger Ted Wilson about the rescue, about coming to terms with Gaylord Campbell's statements, why people are still interested in the 1967 rescue, and the advice he has for young climbers. I caught up with him just before a showing of the Grand Rescue at the Jackson Hole Center for the Arts. Here we go. And why do you think people are still interested in it? I mean, there you were saying that some of the issues are, are still similar, and it's still relevant that way. But you know, there are a lot of rescues and a lot of, on a lot of mountains. What in particular made this something that sort of stuck in people's memories this many years later? Well, I think for its time, it was an unusually technical rescue. Some have said it was probably the most technical rescue ever done in the United States. I don't know about that. but uh, And so that commanded attention. It was on America's Matterhorn face, if you will, the north face of the Grand Teton. And it's very steep and big. It required almost 2,000 feet of lowering. And that attracted the press of the Times. They were out here. We had several national newspapers and others here. And, and so I think the whole sort of scene, people today are interested in the 60s again. I mean, after all, CNN is running a complete series on the 60s. And I think that even gets the mountain rescue in the, in the 60s. I know there's a new documentary coming out about the, the climbing culture that went on in Yosemite. You know, it was, I can't remember the name of it, it's like Yosemite Outlaws, or it was something about, or Uprising, it was Uprising, yeah. and there's a little bit of nostalgia for that, like, you know, people go to the mountains and that sort of outlaw culture. Do you think that's, you know, that's part of it, where people kind of want to reconnect to that wildness and that rebellion that existed in 67? Well, the 60s were a time of rebellion. It was the sexual revolution, it was the beat revolution, it was the hip revolution, it was... Haight-Ashbury, it was new drugs on the scene. 
it was a very tumultuous different time. And I think as people look back, they're very curious, particularly Generation X and the younger people today, they're, they're wondering what it was all about because their parents have been very mum, probably for a good reason. <laughs> they, some of the statutes of limitations have not run. <laughs> you know, looking back to what you were doing at the time, is it hard to put yourself back in that place you were, you know, the person you were when you were up on the mountain trying to, you know, doing that rescue on the Grand? Well, you know, you don't change a lot on those issues. I'm still as frightened of, I still do a little climbing, still scares me to death. I'm still alive because I was scared to death. Uh, I wouldn't say any of us were scared to death on the rescue. It was more of a nine sense during the rescue that something really bad could happen. I mean, we could have gone from one victim to a whole bunch of them. And I think that reserves respect and dignity and care. It taught us a lot. I think we all came away better human beings from that rescue. And what was your biggest fear? Like, you were just saying that, uh, I'm guessing it was something along the lines of the rescuers becoming the victims. Were there any points where you could almost see that fear or that reality on the verge of coming true? Were there any moments that did go beyond the gnawing sense of fear to a little bit more immediate sense of fear? Well, you know, on the third day, uh, four of us were still on a ledge about 300 feet up above the grandstand, which had, was the landing place on the second day. And we had to come down with a single strand of rope that was tied together in the middle. And if you know anything about mountaineering, you can't, it's very difficult to use a brake bar, a friction device, because you have to pass it over and use special knots to do it, and it was very complicated. We were tired, we were hungry, and so we decided to repel with it just wrapped around our bodies. And that, for all of us, I think was a crux. Uh, a time when we sat, when once we got down, we looked back up that 300 feet and see one of our buddies sort of fighting that single strand and hoping they could stay on it. Uh, it was a sobering moment. It was, it was kind of scary town there. You know, and when you got down off the mountain, I know from watching the, uh, watching the trailer and, and reading about it, the, uh, one of the most remarkable things to me was the fact that Gaylord Campbell, um, he was not exactly, didn't, he did not behave in the way that a lot of people thought that a, uh, a rescue survivor, a rescue victim would behave. And I know that you've had a long time to think about it now. Did it, have you gotten a lot more perspective on that part of it? Because I'm guessing as a young climber, that had to be kind of, especially after what you were just describing, that, that couldn't have been a welcome surprise here in how he was talking to the media. Well, it turned out to be an unwelcome surprise because two days after he was in Jackson Hospital down here, he kind of cast off against us in the news, and it surprised us. Now, I have to say, though, that it's tough for rescue victims to be good sports. First of all, they've hurt themselves badly. They've hurting for three days on a mountain. They're out of control. They no longer control the scene like a climber does. They're looking around, wondering why people are doing what they're doing. I can understand the genesis of it. What I don't understand is now, almost 50 years later, the man still feels the same way. <laughs> I thought maybe he would have mellowed. But, but you know, we, when we took the oath as rangers, we didn't, 
we w weren't required to ask people if they're good people before we rescue them. <laughs> so we have the right to rescue anybody that's hurt and must do that. That's our job. And so I don't think it's a big deal, but it's interesting that he continues to be sort of uptight about the way he was taken off the mountain. Do you have any friends who are a little less understanding about it, if they were a part of the rescue or not, where I could see, you know, some of my friends, if that had happened, where maybe they would be a little less understanding about it? Well, I've tried to be understanding because I don't like to be mad more than I should, but a couple of my buddies are more uptight than I am. And I, it could have been because uh, I was sort of the special nursemaid to Campbell. Uh, when we got on the first ledge where we first got to him and after this first aid was done, we needed someone to stay up all night. And the two guys I wound up on that ledge with had been on the mountain for two days and they were exhausted. I said, get some sleep, guys. So I spent a lot of time talking to Campbell that night, trying to keep his mind off the pain. We didn't have any drugs at that point. So I think maybe I understood him a little better, you know. Um, there was a little more human connection with us. Otherwise, he was just kind of an honorary, cantankerous guy. <laughs> you know, have you, since this has happened, have you talked to uh, rangers who have maybe, I'm guessing, you know, the ranger community and the rescue community have learned a lot from this rescue. Has that, you know, because there's obviously technique things you can learn, but just dealing with the aftermath, have you talked to other people, a part of other rescues that have either had a, a similar victim or, you know, have you helped guys out who've gone through something similar to what you guys did with Campbell? Well, in terms of similar victims, I think all victims that are hurting seriously and badly, it's tough for them to be good sports. So I think all rescuers deal with that. In terms of techniques and so forth, the techniques used today are much, much different. And they've been great, more greatly refined. If Gaylord Campbell had fallen, let's say, last week, he would have been in the hospital today. It, he would have been off the face in three hours once we got to him, because a helicopter would have hovered, they would have dropped a short haul rope, he would have been clipped in and taken right down to help. So, and the helicopter really rules rescue today, but if you have a rescue that's bad and the weather goes bad, then you have to do it the old fashioned way. And that's where they get back to what we were doing. Okay, so just a note, at this point the hall filled up with people, so you'll hear a change in the background noise. Let's get back to it. Okay, ready to rock and roll? Yeah, sorry okay. about that. But, you know, one of the things you're saying is that, you know, some of the same issues, and it's, I think it's still relevant. And, you know, once the movies come out, have you had any young climbers, young rangers come up and talk to you and, and say what they sort of took away from the rescue or the movie or anything like that? Oh, yeah, we've had a lot, particularly the Jenny Lake Rangers, which uh, is the name of the rescue team here in Grand Teton National Park. Uh, we're very close to those guys. We have been since we served there. And uh, Rennie Jackson, who ran the Rangers for many, many years, was our technical leader on the film, actually on the mountain, and our safety warden, making sure we didn't lose somebody in filming the thing, because they were right there out on the face. Oh, doing all the reenactments yeah, and all that. doing the reenactments. So. Uh, yeah, we, we have great respect for the young rangers. We, we feel like we're kind of the glue between the past and the present. That's important in any first responder kind of situation, whether it's the young sheriff or the old sheriff or the young firefighter or the old firefighter. There's sort of a, 
pattern of passing the lore back and forth and, and, and enjoying each other and telling lots of lies. We enjoy lies. And as I always tell people, the older you are, the better you were. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, I was just thinking, that has to be kind of tough because going back and having all of those old times scrutinized by, you know, by an entire documentary, are there things that maybe you uh, realized were a little bit different than when you, than that you've been kind of recalling them all these years or anything a little bit different when you get back to them? Well, you know, as far as accuracy on the rescue, there were seven of us, seven different views of it. We were never all in one place at the same time. And, and seven different memories after 45 years causes all of us to have a different rendition. You know, in a way, I said to one of my friends, I said, were we on the same mountain? <laughs> so uh, the interpretation many years later is, is subject to all kinds of a, a variety. So be because of those different perspectives, did you learn anything about the rescue that you know, even though you were a part of it, was there anything that sort of jumped out at you that maybe you didn't realize completely from just your memory alone? Oh, definitely. There are many things that came up. Uh, for example, uh, the ones that left the first ledge where we stayed the first night with Campbell and took uh, the young woman off via the second ledge and then down to the upper saddle to get, to get or lower saddle, get a helicopter ride out. They had a totally different experience. They wound up carrying heavier gear. I think they're, they were moving more. They had more difficulties on their point of view while we had different kinds of difficulties where we were. Now, uh, you know, of the, of the, you've been, you said you've been to several showings of the film, Telluride and, was it, where were the other places? Telluride, we're going to Aspen next week. Uh, we've been to Alaska. We've been to Park City. We've been uh, Jackson Hole. So yeah, we've done a lot of this sort of thing. Does it ever surprise you that, you know, the interest in the connection that people all across the country have to a story like this? I mean, is it what? What do you think it is about this kind of story that gets? Because I'm, I went climbing for the first time last week, so I'm not a climber, but just this thing, this this story was just so engaging for me. You know, what is it about? this rescue that keeps grabbing people even like 40 years later? Well, you know, I wish I really understood why people uh, are still attracted to the rescue. First of all, it's a darn good film. The people who made the film did an excellent job. And you can take almost anything with a good film around it and make it good. Uh, that's one element, but I think there was an old time sense of adventure, old time gear, you know, we love to see a car in 1935 racing across the Bonneville Salt Flats at 301 miles an hour, a new world record for the time. Because we know in those days, cars were not really built to do that. So I think the historical element is a big part of it. Do you think that maybe people have lost a little bit of that sense of adventure? They, I mean, people almost, I wouldn't say feel too safe, but they're, they miss that sort of sense of being on the edge? Well, I think to the contrary. I think most young people today are very adventuresome. People are out running, they're out hiking, they're out, you know, on sailboats and paddle boards. 
and they're doing really amazing things, jumping off of cliffs as they, they don't even turn their skis anymore. They just go straight down these amazingly big mountains. So I think they're very, very adventurous, and maybe too much in a way, because I think being at the leading edge of something now is really important to the younger people. And they need to be careful too. You know, bad things can happen. Looking at this and being a part of you know, a rescue that people are still talking about and is really well known. You know, what are your thoughts on how safe modern climbing is? You know, is that something that has been brought up by audiences or, or I guess what are your views on, on that safety factor nowadays? Well, modern, you know, I really am committed to the idea of safety and when I look at modern climbing, uh, the envelopes are getting more and more difficult. I have a young man that, free solos, things like the northwest face of Half Dome. I totally admire him. The control he has over his body and his mind is unbelievable. But at the same token, I hope he's measured the safety that he has, that he's sure of the zone he's put himself in. Uh, young people are our greatest resource, and, and I hope they'll love these adventure sports, just to love them, but don't love them to death. Put safety number one, it's really important. You have loved ones at home. You have a future in the world. We need you. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Scott. Good luck in your stuff and be safe. That's our show for today. Thanks to Jenny and Ted Wilson and We Aspire Productions, which made the film. The music on today's show came from Brian Fox and was used under the Creative Commons license. I'm Scott Stunts. Thanks for listening.